As we push into August, the hills and heather moorland of the British uplands are reaching the climax of their brilliance. Dancing purple seas drape the rolling landscape like nowhere else on earth. The site is quintessentially British. It is my second favorite time of year to be in the hills, surpassed only by the late spring, when life begins to return after the winter exodus. The curlew, one of our most endangered and revered birds, brings back the sound of new life with their distinctive cry, a sound lost to much of the UK now with their precipitous decline. It is this landscape, the uplands, that I live, nestled in the foothills of the Angus Glens, not very far from where I grew up. While my work as a documentary filmmaker takes me all over the world, there is something still magical about these hills and glens, a place I have maybe neglected. Come on, Spartan. You need to get out of the way for me. Thank you. Catch you later. I wanted to spend a little more time focusing on the Alpines this year. To get my feet a little more at home. The landscape around me was forged thousands of years ago by mighty glaciers. But today, it's the hand of humans, which is facilitating the most rapid shifts in how our landscape looks. Given how key the uplands are for both biodiversity and climate change, I wanted to ask one simple question. What is the future of the British uplands? As we look to the next few years, ambitious targets will see millions of trees planted across the uplands with large funding projects well underway to reverse the degradation of our peatlands. Land use change, particularly around agricultural subsidies, the licensing of grouse moors, and government regulations on deer management, will unquestionably change not only how our landscape looks, but the fabric of culture and tradition as well. But I wonder, is this restoration of what was, or are we changing it to something completely different? What does this mean for the land and the wildlife and the people who rely on it? To help answer this question, I've enlisted the help of friend and eco-journalist, Sarah Roberts. Hi, yeah, how are you doing? I am pretty good. And I will be even better if you say yes to my question. Oh, it sounds exciting. What is it? So, you know, I've been working on this Upland series where I'm doing this kind of journey of discovery into the Uplands across the UK to ask this question of what is what does the future look like? How is our landscape changing? Mm -hmm. I remember this. So I'm sure I picked your brains on this already. Well, yeah. I feel like I need some help. And I'm hoping you're going to say yes to helping me do some of the interviews of this, because I feel like your inquisitive nature and brain is going to get some of the best out of the, the guests that I have on my list. I can't wait to ask the questions. Yes, I'm in. I'm in. This is the British Uplands podcast with Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, an exploration of change in one of the UK's most important landscapes. Grant to take down trees, plant to put hedges, plant to dig ditches, plants put on sheep, no grounds for sheep, sheep come off. If you hear a simple argument put forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that simple argument 
has to be wrong. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> the first stop on our journey is a stroll across some heather moorland with Professor Robin Pakeman from the Hutton Institute. He has been researching how biodiversity is impacted by land use change. Well, we've got nice weather for it, at least today. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. What exactly is it that defines an upland? Well, it's really hard to do that because diff- you, know, you get a different definition in part of different parts of the country. But really, it's what's been above cultivation. So no one has ever been up here with a plough. But right. if you contrast down to the lowlands, it's very obvious, heavily cropped. You can see the oilseed rape standing out. So this is really what we call semi-natural vegetation. It's been influenced by man, but the disturbance has never really been massive. So it allows the natural species to have survived, but in a sort of modified habitat. And is it all made up of one habitat or are there lots of different habitats? No, what we've got here is, uh, you know, we've got a bit of green going through this nice bit of dry heath. But as you get further west, you get wet heath. And up here on top of the hill, we've got blanket bog as well. So where the drain is impeded, you get much more water, much a different community where the heather doesn't do so well and get lots of sphagnum and things like that. So in terms of biodiversity, is this quite an important spot? Um, yeah, so UK sort of heathlands are really pretty unique and they have their, a new, unique set of species with them. And a few minutes ago, we heard a curlew and you know that's a real indicator of open habitats and they they just don't like not being able to see they they sort of keep an eye on their predators um, by observation and they don't like that sort of cover being close to them so yeah and we got other species that also enjoy the uplands and there's a different suite to other things that you get further down yeah so when we are out hiking in these areas and observing these uplands that you know you see around the country are these actually a natural environment or have they been influenced they've been heavily influenced so they're they're made up of native species but the management here has has changed and changed the dominance of them so here heather is really dominant because it's been manipulated this system has been manipulated by burning so you get a fresh growth of the heather for the for the sheep uh, but also that mosaic brings added diversity into the system so you get a different suite of species associated with mature heather and a different suite associated with a freshly burnt heather so that management brings its own diversity but it has also promoted the the, the dominance of heather over other species how important are these uplands then in terms of the whole planet and climate change, biodiversity, all those big buzzwords right now? Yeah, well, you know, Scotland has its own unique set of species and the management has, has benefited some and not benefited others. But in terms of, you know, a global system, you know, it's very carbon rich. So these uplands, even these dry heaths have got big carbon reserves. And we're doing all we can now to try and protect those. And the government is putting a lot of money into peatland restoration to really push these systems to their maximum in terms of drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. I can actually hear a few different bird songs in the background. Is this important for nesting birds? Yeah, very much so. We've just heard a skylark again. And, you know, skylark and meadow pipits, they're very much birds of open ground. So... They, they do like these sort of habitats, perhaps not in massive densities, but, you know, they're always characteristic species of open habitats. And then in turn, they support um, 
raptors like Merlin, which are quite specialist on metapipits and hen harriers also. You know, metapipit is one of the key species in the uplands as uh, a food source for some of the sort of really iconic species of Scottish uplands. How important then is it for the biodiversity that this is a wide open habitat? Uh, well, you get what you pay for basically. If you planted trees here, you get a completely different suite of species. So it's a choice of A or B and somewhere in the middle there's a, some A and some B will give you the most diversity. But at an individual level, it's, you would lose species and you gain species. So we've been doing some work down in the South Highlands at Glenfinglas and we have tabulated the winners and losers and there's so many different permutations you could have by changing the different habitats but they're always going to be winners and losers, whatever you do. So the animals and the, the beetles, the plants that all live yeah. here now, I guess it, they're dependent on this particular terrain. Yeah, so there are species that are purely associated with upland heathland like this, and you find nowhere else. Others you find in some other habitats. And then if you think about woodland planting, you bring a completely different suite of species in, uh, and you'd lose some of the species associated with this. So no land use decision is is always positive mm. unless perhaps you're digging up a concrete cow park <laughs> i think some people as well have this false belief that the trees being planted and then carrying the carbon and putting it straight back in the soil but it doesn't quite work like that does it no and in some situations if you had a really open sandy grassland there's almost no carbon in that system planting that with trees is a definite win in terms of carbon. Mm. But in these upland landscapes, the initial effect of that tree planting is negative on it's taking it's, it's out the changing the system. Yeah. And if you put in species like birch, which has a easily decomposed leaves, that changes the whole carbon cycle in soil and starts to liberate things as well. So the payback time to turn positive in terms of carbon could be decades. So actually a quick win in the uplands is perhaps not planting trees. Um, which is the opposite which of is, what everyone thinks on the planet right now, isn't it? It is. Because uh, and it's, it goes it's, against the ethos of, of, of offsetting carbon, plant a tree. Yeah, woodland expansion is, yeah. is really important. But the best thing in terms of return, in terms of timber and in terms of carbon, is to plant in the lowlands. But then you're competing with agricultural land. So we have effectively a zero-sum game. We have a limited amount of land and actually that decision-making is really complicated about what is best for Scotland, for the globe, and what's best for the individual landowner and the surrounding communities. Sarah's conversation with Professor Paikman made me think of an interview I did a couple of years ago with Dr Nina Figgins. At the time, she had just released a paper entitled tree planting in organic soils does not result in net carbon sequestration on decadal timescales. I had been keen to understand more about this groundbreaking research at a time when we were seeing large-scale shifts in land use in the uplands, moving away from more traditional agriculture and field sports towards carbon-driven enterprise. When you compared the heather moorland to the plots that had trees on them, there was a significant loss of carbon from the soil. And this carbon lost from the soil was not compensated for by 
carbon gained from tree biomass growth. And in the plots that were 39 years old, so trees had been growing there for 39 years, in some cases we saw a significant loss of carbon from the soil still, but in at 39 years the carbon gained above ground had offset the carbon lost from the soil. However, it wasn't there was no net gain of carbon. It's clear that there are no simple answers here. And I now have more questions about the impacts of land use change than I did when I started, particularly where the driving force is carbon markets. Up and down the country, we are seeing dramatic shifts in land ownership, with insurance companies and financial institutions buying up large areas of land for carbon offsets. I can't help but wonder if there will be clashes between the desired outcomes for biodiversity conservation with the momentum of capital markets seeking profits for carbon. And sometimes we do get it wrong. In the 70s and 80s, government incentives facilitated the draining of the flow country in northern Scotland whereupon it was planted in pine trees for timber production, an area that was later regarded as one of the most important wetlands in Europe, and we have spent years trying to rectify the damage. In 2020, a tree planting scheme funded by the confectionery maker Nestle had to be ripped up on a farm in England after being located in a wildlife meadow, home to rare greater butterfly orchids. But tree planting isn't just about carbon. It can be a crucial tool in conservation efforts, as I found out very close to home, only a few miles from where I live in the Angus Glens. Wow, this has changed. This has changed a lot. We've got a huge amount of, um, we're on a, a, a quite a big sweeping bend here in the burn, uh, and there's been a huge amount of deposition of, of gravels and pebbles in the inside of the bend that's uh, narrowed up the, the, the burn quite I mean, a lot. It's, it's only, I mean, it's two metres across here as opposed to, yeah. you know, well, I mean, even further up where we, where we started, it was much wider. It was probably almost 10 metres in some places. Uh-huh. So again, it's, it's d deposition of materials. The, the, the bend, it might start to erode a little bit, but there's, a, there's quite a steep cliff face down there and it's not going to be able to erode any further in there. Mm. So... And this will start to get deeper over time and it'll provide a nice pool. And as we just walk on here, oh, what's this? It could be otter, actually. Possibly. Yeah. Big yeah, enough? Yeah, looks like it. Yeah. Uh, there's footprints in the sand. I am travelling up Glen Clover, near the headwaters of the River South Esk. The water that flows from here into the North Sea starts its life in the hills above me draining through the heather moorland and peatlands of the uplands. Dr Craig McIntyre is the director of the Esk Rivers and Fisheries Trust, working across the district water catchment to improve the health of our rivers. The Rottle Burn project was an ambitious restoration scheme. It's drastically different. Um, that, in that time the, the burn was arrow straight. It had been straightened sometime in the 19th century, early 19th century for agricultural, for drainage reasons. Uh, it ran pretty much uh, dead straight from the from the road down to the confluence with the River South Esk for about oh, six, seven hundred metres, mm -hmm. um, which isn't very good for biodiversity or wildlife. 
because you just you just you end up with this sort of uh, singular flow, singular speed, sing singular type of riverbed. Yeah, that's, that's precisely it. You you have the, the the width of the the burn. The river channel is is consistent all the way down. You have the same depth. You have the same uh, substrates, and they tend to fill in the silt as well. So it becomes less usable for for fish and for uh, insects as well. This project involved strategic tree planting and natural regeneration along the river, which has numerous benefits, not just for nature, but for landowners as well. It helps protect their, their fields. It helps, helps protect, so it slows down erosion. Uh, we're, we're looking at an erosion site just now. Yeah, like the, the bank's pretty steep there, and it's very, the, the face is very sheer, and you can actually, I can see quite a lot of it's collapsed on the corner there. It has, it has. There's a bit of slump there, but there are trees behind it that will slow down that rate of erosion. Um, and then so it's not going to, the, the burn's not going to migrate far into fields and they're not going to lose land, basically. And this is quite a different picture from further down this glen, where there's a lot of um, grass fields with huge, big, high banks that, or actually maybe it's further up here, I can't remember now because I come up here too often. <laughs> Um, or is it just further down? It's just, it's just here, yeah. Um, and where there. those banks, there aren't any trees behind them, and they just you can see that they're continually cutting and carving into the river. Why is that a problem? Apart from the loss of land, obviously. <laughs> well, from a, from a fish point of view, the important yeah. fish, what's happening there is the Glen Clover, where we are just now, post-glacial, used to be a lake bed. So the, This was a giant lake? This was a, we, we would have been underwater huh. uh, 10,000 years ago. So it's, the soils are very, very sandy. It's just mm. like a silty, sandy lake bed. Um, and because of that, the, the soils are, the, the, are very prone to erosion. Okay. And because there aren't any trees, the erosion rate's actually quite fast. So you end up with lots of fine sediments going into the river and they smother the important stones, the pebbles, the cobbles, uh, the gravel that salmon, salmon and trout need to survive. So they'll slowly smother them over time uh, and then they just become unusable and that, that becomes a desert, a literal desert in the river for fish. And you'll, mm. you'll go in there and you find a very few insects. There's maybe a few gammarid shrimps are all that's left, but there's no caddisflies, midge, midge larvae. They're gone. Uh, and that, those, those are the insects that fish feed on. And, and why is the, this riparian planting so important um, for the rivers? And how does it, how does it link with this a desire to make resilient ecosystems? Well, tree, trees and rivers together are a really important combination. Tree roots next on river banks, they bind the roots together and they protect the, the river banks from erosion. I can see that right here, just in front of us, where the, the, the river's coming down quite fast and cutting in under the bank, but there's a whole line of trees there and I can see the roots on the edge. Yeah. So they'll be stopping that eroding further. Absolutely. Or making it slower at least. They, they, they slow down natural processes, yeah, and uh, slow, slow down erosional processes. But also, un where the, the river's undercutting the bank, that's really important habitat for fish as well, especially trout. The trout love it and under there, hiding amongst the roots. Yeah. So it provides all these extra areas of refuge. They can hide from predators. So trees form, the, 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 the roots bind the banks together but also the, as the trees grow, they start to shade the burn as well. So it cools the water. There's an awful lot of work being done um, by fisheries trusts and Marine Scotland Science into the, the impact that tree planting has on river temperature. And we know that 
having trees um, shading rivers can cool can cool a river by two or three degrees, and we know that we're getting warmer temperatures in the summertime that are getting up towards the the upper thermal tolerance limits for for salmon. I think we're so used to seeing trees in the rivers like let's pull them out. Like here's another more otter prints here, or is that? I think that's a dog. Is that a dog? Yeah. Definitely going to cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> I think it's a bit big, isn't it? Yeah. Now we understand a little more about the uplands and some of the complexities around future land uses, let's dig a little deeper, below the iconic purple heather-clad hills. How far below? Well, we're about to find out how crucial that question is. There's this incredible history book that goes back way into prehistory, but it's all invisible. And this is the trouble. Um, you know, we often say that um, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the bottom of the oceans, the deep oceans. But actually, if you go onto Google Maps, you can see the bottom of the oceans. You can see a map of it. We don't have a similar map of the world's peatlands. We've just not been able to map those depths. Richard Lindsay is an internationally respected specialist in the ecology and conservation of peatland ecosystems and a principal lecturer at the University of London. Just 30 centimetres of peat can contain as much carbon over an area of a hectare, so 100 metres by 100 metres. It can contain as much carbon as a hectare of tropical rainforest. Most of our peatlands are much deeper than 30 centimetres. So I mean, it's, it's certainly been calculated that in the world's peatlands, there are probably tw there's twice as much carbon stored in the world's peatlands than there is in all the world's forests, including tropical rainforests. Think for a moment about the global drive to preserve tropical rainforests and our efforts to curb climate change. Yet, right at home, we are sitting on arguably a more important store of carbon. That makes our choices for how we use these landscapes crucially important. Currently, much of the discussion around what people can do in the uplands, where managed burning can take place, where trees can be planted, is governed by government regulation linked to peat depth. There is this issue of deep peat versus shallow peat. It's a non-issue. There is no such thing as deep peat versus shallow peat. It is a continuum. The only reason we have this distinction is because the original soil surveys were devised with a view to exploitation. So if you're aiming to dig up your peatland, you need it to be a certain minimum thickness to make it worth your while. So we've developed this concept of deep peat, which is anywhere from 50 centimetres, 40 centimetres, 50 centimetres to a metre, simply because we regarded these peatland areas as only valuable to exploit. Ah, interesting. In fact, the, for example, Russia uses a minimum depth of 30 centimetres 
uh, to say, well, this is a peatland. But even then, it will accept that you can have peatland ecosystems with even shallower peat deposits. Indeed, there are occasions where you don't need peat to be present. You simply need a peat-forming vegetation to be present. People have tended to dismiss very extensive areas of peatland as not peat because it's not deep enough, which is just completely nonsensical. Um, so what we have in terms of the resource in the UK, if you take the concept of shallow peat versus deep peat, then our total peatland resource is considered to be around about three and a half million hectares. If you incorporate peat and what is called shallow peat or peaty soils, that total more than doubles. That then leads us on to issues such as the forestry um, lobby and the Forestry Commission saying we will only uh, plant on peat that is less than 50 centimetres. A few years ago it was we will only plant on peat that is less than a metre deep. But what that means is that although the deeper peats are now no longer so threatened by the prospect of plantation forestry, shallower peats are in effect actively targeted because the problem is peatlands are regarded as low value land. So it's very difficult for the forest industry to plant on agricultural land that's seen as valuable. It's very difficult to find any other areas that are relatively easily obtainable. What's left? Well, the peatlands, because nobody wants them, nobody values them. So forestry has tended to be pushed by, in effect, policy and um, strategic decisions and valuation into these areas of shallow peat. So actually, it, it's the shallow peat areas that are most under threat. The more we have travelled along the road of discovery as to the future of our uplands, the more it has become apparent just how complicated our choices are. We have heard about how unique and special the British uplands are, not just for us, but globally. They are a critical habitat for rare birds and plants, and are a crucial tool in our fight against climate change. We will soon find out how they contribute to ecosystem services such as clean drinking water and provide wild food from the hill to the plate. But in the next episode, we are going to speak to the people who live and work in these landscapes. And if this web of information has left you reeling a bit, and it all sounds a tad complicated, well, it is. Here is a final word from Professor Robin Paikman. If you hear a simple argument put mm. forward about how the uplands need to be managed, then that simple argument has to be wrong because managing places like this is really complicated and it depends very much on what you want out of the system and how you want who gets to benefit, whether it's very locally, nationally, globally. Mm.
The British Upland series is presented by Byron Pace and Sarah Roberts, co-produced and edited by David Shanks as part of the Into the Wilderness podcast, an MH Studios production. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and visit the webpage www.britishuplands.com to keep up to date and get in touch with any questions. You can also email info at britishuplands.com.